are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD. Hello and welcome to the series of digital conversations organised by the Office of the Chief Economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. We're looking at the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the global economy. Today, we're looking at the future of capitalism through and post the COVID-19 pandemic. As the relationships between the public and private sectors are shifting under the pressure of the COVID-19 crisis, the spotlight is on the system that we live in, capitalism. Will the coronavirus pandemic change capitalism forever? Can this change produce a more cohesive, inclusive and equal system? This is what we'll be talking about today and trying to find out. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm the EBRD's Managing Director of Communications. Today, I'm joined by the EBRD Chief Economist, Beate Yavorczyk, also the, uh, a Professor of Economics at Oxford, and our two distinguished guests. Sir Paul Collier is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government and a professorial fellow of St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. He's among the best known development economists in the world and his latest book is The Future of Capitalism, Facing the New Anxieties. Also with us is uh, Colin Mayer. He's Peter Moore's Professor of Management Studies at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. He's written and spoken extensively on the future of capitalism and the corporation and his latest book is Prosperity, Better business makes the greater good. Um, but before we start our three-way conversation, we're joined by another special guest in the form of the EBRD president, uh, Suma Chakrabarti. He's also joining us from Oxford, so it's quite a day for us, and uh, my alma mater in the city of dreaming uh, spires. Suma, I know the topic under discussion is one that you're particularly interested in. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It certainly is a topic I'm very interested in. Um, quite extraordinary here to be sitting here in uh, my house in Oxford. Um, uh, not very far from Paul and uh, Colin. In fact, I think I'm about 50 yards away from Colin uh, in his house. Um, normally I'd see these guys at Blavatnik or Said, but it's great to have them on screen. And Beata, of course, also another Oxford professor. So, but I think she's in Zurich. So she's not in the city of dreaming spires or perspiring dreams even. Um, so let me just say a few things, perhaps. Uh, three things that occur to me, because I've always enjoyed reading the works of all three economists uh, here, but three things about capitalism that I guess uh, I've been thinking about as this crisis has um, deepened. Uh, one is, I think, uh, an impact really around, I guess, inequality and inclusion. Uh, I think there's a lot being written in recent years, uh, certainly Paul's written quite a lot about it, I think, about the way you know, full-blooded capitalism, certainly in the UK and some other places, have uh, has tended to exacerbate um, the tensions between those parts uh, of countries which have lost out, uh, have not really gained through that sort of capitalism. And I think we were moving towards an inflection point anyway, I think, in this debate. And I think this virus has made it uh, even more obvious. It's not a democratic virus at all. Yes, members of royalty, uh, prime ministers, they can get it. But if you look at who it's hit, uh, firstly, it's very much uh, the poorer, uh, parts uh, of our economy, uh, economies. Uh, I think there are whole issues around uh, in the labour market, last in, first out, whether you're women or young uh, uh, employees or business people. Uh, and I think it's also very interesting the way um, it's maybe made people rethink what they really value in terms of who are the producers and uh, services and uh, others uh, who are essential, who is not essential. And I think there is now 
going to be much more an ethical debate, in my view, which is long overdue about what we value out of capitalism uh, going forward, uh, which I think is, is welcome. Se second area, I think, is um, I guess we've been thinking about it a lot in EBRD, particularly because we have a reputation of being the strongest multilateral on the green agenda. Um, and we are sitting here in the UK uh, in probably the lowest uh, emissions, carbon emissions uh, for many, many years, uh, because government has taken active decision to suppress economic activity. Uh, so what does this mean in terms of green growth going forward? Can we uh, persuade ourselves to actually do more, we call it tilting to green in EBRD, to do much more of that going forward so we don't go straight back to the uh, sort of unsustainable growth path that, in terms of in the environment that we we're on before? And I think that's a, it's a big issue we're going to have to face up to as well. And the third thing that I've been thinking about, I, I guess, is about what does this mean for systems of government more broadly? Um, governments have uh, a big role to play in stimulating the private sector or holding it back, as we know from our own work in EBRD. Um, what's been striking about the way I think some governments have handled this uh, whole crisis is that they have uh, perhaps not learned the lessons of, first of all, learning from each other, uh, looking across uh, uh, um, continents. And I think it's been very striking that, you know, how unwilling uh, some governments are to look at East Asia and other parts of the world where they've made more progress. Secondly, I think it's been quite interesting to look at, um, and again, Paul wrote about this recently, about centralised versus decentralised modes of government. Uh, you know, some of us who were in the civil service uh, always used to argue for much more decent decentralisation within the UK. Um, and I think there is an interesting issue as to whether those countries which have allowed the decentralized modes of government to play out have actually done better in tackling this crisis. And what does this mean going forward? I think I could argue that the private sector generally has done a better job of handling this crisis than governments have done, uh, certainly many of the countries um, that we work in or shareholders of EBRD. So I think that's uh, the third sort of area that I think that I've been thinking a lot about is what is the future of the government in dealing with these sort of crises going forward? And will governments now adapt to a different form of um, different approach in, uh, in the future as well? So I'll stop there. I, I'm really sorry that I can't stay for the whole discussion, uh, like many of you, going from one webinar to another. Um, so I go off to a WEF webinar in about 20 minutes, but I'd love to hear the opening remarks, at least, of our three distinguished uh, guests. Back to you, John. Suma, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for staying for even part of this discussion. So, the future of capitalism after the COVID-19 crisis, that's what we're discussing. Even though we're still in the midst of this crisis, or maybe even really at the beginning of the economic part of it, maybe 15-20% into it, there are some shifts that have already been recorded. The 2020 Edelman Trust Barometer, the largest survey on trust and attitudes, recorded the most dramatic turnaround in levels of public trust in governments and institutions. Turns out that we now trust governments more than ever, at least in some countries. We're witnessing the nation states pouring money into the economy, even nationalizing some of the key infrastructure. We're also witnessing different levels of readiness for a crisis of this scale across different countries, from full lockdowns before fatalities to complete denial. These are just a few of the things that we'll be talking about. There is clearly much, much more. So I'm going to uh, turn to our guests now. 
to ask uh, what the three things are on the future of capitalism post-coronavirus that are most in their minds. And Paul, perhaps I could start with you. Thanks very much. Yeah. So as 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 Fuma said, the um, the, the 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 last few decades of capitalism haven't been very impressive anyway. Um, they've produced a, a lot of inequality and particularly in Britain a lot of spatial inequality um, and that was illustrated dramatically in the last election in December um, when uh, 50 seats in the northern north of England um, switched party from from Labour to Conservative and so the new government that came in was committed to an agenda called leveling up which was about very belatedly, but that the the poorer regions of Britain needed to catch up with the growth of London, um, and now that's um, temporary collided with 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 this second shock, COVID, and they've got one thing in common. If we ask the government, how do you actually enable regions to catch up with London? And if we ask the government, what should you do in response to COVID? The honest answer in each case is, we don't know. Because there is no single model that can answer the question of how do we get poor regions that have been declining for the last 30 years, how do we turn them around? We've got a lot of suggestions. There's a long past history of policy failure to do that, we don't know. And with COVID, um, if, if governments really wanted to produce a demonstration that we don't know, they've done a wonderful job of it. Right? Um, so that's, that's where we start. And that's a very, very important lesson. Because these two things have in common, there, there is one concept which captures both phenomena. And that is the, the old economics concept of radical uncertainty, which has just come back. There's a very important new book by John Kay and Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, called Radical Uncertainty. And that picks up on a, a theme that was in economics, but sort of got lost um, from the 1950s and is now just coming back. And if you confront radical uncertainty, you need a very different approach to government. Um, and you, you start by saying, the top does not know best. Because the, the only way to cope with a phenomenon where you don't know what to do is to find out what to do. And you learn by experiment, but you don't just want to do one experiment you want to do a lot of experiments in parallel. And that's only feasible if you decentralize authority, push the power of decision and the power of resources that goes with it down the system to the local level. It's only at the local level where you can ever acquire the tacit knowledge that comes from trying to implement something and very often failing and experimenting and then hitting on something that works well enough. It may not be optimal, but it works well enough. And then you need to hoover all that 
shared experience are, you know, some mechanism for sharing it, so that um, that rapid learning becomes social learning, where everybody learns from everybody else's experiment. So that's the, the basic, basic message of radical uncertainty. It says push authority down to the local level, to the coal face of action. Now, governments for the last 40 years have been trying to do the opposite. They've been trying to take responsibility off the people at the coalface of practical experience. And they've done that because they've navigated by this ridiculous concept of economic man. Economic man, that is the, 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 the Mickey Mouse description in economics of human nature, economic man is greedy, is lazy, and is selfish. Now we're all a bit greedy and a bit lazy and a bit selfish, but that's not all we are. What we now know from modern evolutionary biology is that humans are uniquely uh, evolved to be pro-social, to be capable of being morally load-bearing. Um, we're not greedy. We're all a bit greedy, but we're capable of much more than that. And most of the time, we rise to that. And we're capable of mutuality, of, of building mutual obligations and meeting them. We do that um, within a family, we do that within a firm, we do that in a public organization like National Health Service. And so the important thing that government's got to learn is that we can trust people. As long as they've got a, a sense of purpose, people can rise to it. So um, greed, no, greed is dead. Um, that incidentally is the, the, the title of a, of a book that John Kay and I have just written, which will be coming out in, uh, in, in two or three months. Um, uh, so we're, we're capable of moral load bearing. We don't need top down. The top does not know best. It knows worst because it's furthest removed from all that tacit knowledge that we're going to have to generate. Okay. You'll get involved government. I'll pass it back. We'll, we'll come back uh, then, Paul, I think, to some of those themes because they're quite interesting. And interesting enough about the top not knowing best, of course, this is a time when many citizens would like the top to know best, and even if they don't. Uh, we'll come back to these thoughts. Colin, your, uh, your headlines of where we stand in this debate. Okay, let me just pick up, Jonathan, if I may, on your observation about trust having risen uh, in government. Uh, at the same time, what we're observing is that trust in what business has done in this crisis has not been good. Less than 40% of people in that uh, survey you referred to believe that business is putting people before profits, protecting employees in terms of their jobs or their well-being, or supporting suppliers by extending credit in a time when they need it. And I think it's important to recognize the implications of that because in the financial crisis, there was a considerable amount of goodwill in terms of providing support to banks initially, but that was squandered and subsequently gave rise to a great deal of derision on, on the part of the public. 
the potential risks associated with business squandering goodwill at this stage, I think are substantially greater than they were in the time of the crisis. Now, what's required to avoid that from happening and to protect our capitalist system going forward? The first, I would suggest, is a recognition that business should be part of the solution, not the source of the problem. And to do that, it's important that business recognizes it should not profit from producing problems. Now, that's not just simply a normative statement of what business should or should not do. It's also a very positive statement about how we should be measuring what is profit. And in large part, the way in which we measure profit is incorrect, to take the example that Suma was referring to in terms of the environment. At the moment, we reward companies that continue to pollute the environment. They should set aside costs that are associated with cleaning up the mass that they create, not just in relation to the environment, but in relation to society more generally. That's the first element. The second element is for business to have a real purpose that goes beyond the notion of them simply uh, being there to create profit, to recognize that really their role is to provide solutions to problems, but to do so in a profitable way. It's not philanthropy. And that's particularly important in this crisis in terms of how business should be reacting now in the short term, in the medium and in the long term. In particular, it indicates how they should be making the trade-offs that they have to make between, for example, supporting their employees or cutting costs to reduce prices that they charge to. And in particular, it determines how business should be identifying the value creation that they can produce coming out of the crisis in a form that benefits society and delivers value to their investors, because that is critical in terms of the ability of companies to survive during the, during the current crisis. Now, there's an important link to what Paul was just talking about in terms of the leveling up agenda. And that is that business cannot do this on its own. The notion that one always does well by doing good is frankly for the birds. Win-win is wrong-wrong. Business cannot simply internalize all of the externalities. It has to do so in partnership with government. And it has to do it in a way in which it is contributing towards the leveling up program, helping to reduce inequality and promoting environmental solutions. And governments should be partnering with businesses that in particular demonstrate that they are really purposeful and it should thereby encourage companies to have a clear purpose agenda. And finally, I just want to mention the critical role of finance, because what we're about to see is government, in one form or another, having to take on board a hell of a lot of bankrupt companies. The British Business Bank is going to become the British Business Bad Bank taking on bad loans in large proportion. 
How are we going to deal with that? Well, the answer is we've been pretty bad through our banking system to date in terms of restructuring failing companies. This is likely to overwhelm the system unless we make a fundamental change in the way in which we structure a financial system to devolve our banking system back to where it once was in a form that it was delivered our industrial revolution, for example, namely in a much more localized, decentralized form, where there's a close connection between the providers of finance and the SMEs in particular in the regions that really need that finance. Colin, thank you very much. I, I guessed uh, by the sound of it, decentralization is going to be a big theme of this discussion because we've heard it mentioned three times so far. Uh, Beata, your thoughts? So I think there is no question that capitalism is under strain. Some would even say it's in crisis. But there is another crisis that's linked to that. It's the crisis of democracy. Over half of citizens of the US and the UK are dissatisfied with democracy. Um, this is an all-time high for these two countries. And there has been a substantial increase in dissatisfaction. Over a third of population more. So this, this dissatisfaction has increased by over a third in the US within one generation. Now, at the same time, we have some smaller democracies, Netherlands, Switzerland, Denmark, where the support for democracy is at all time high. So we have these trends going in opposite direction in various countries. And I think this is linked, this is linked to anxiety people feel about their future and the sense of powerlessness. And this anxiety is linked to the technological progress, which creates job insecurity, now to COVID, uh, to increasing spatial inequality and all the other factors that Paul has mentioned. And the sense of powerlessness is linked um, to the rising power of corporation in Anglo-Saxon states, to the belief that through lobbying, corporations are affecting the political process. So I think in response, the state will strike back and it will strike back through regulation. We have been talking about ESG companies taking responsibility for two decades and frankly, not enough has happened. And at least on the climate mitigation front, we are running out of time. So I actually expect governments to impose more regulation, but there will be regulatory divergence between the US and Europe. I think Europe will respond with more regulation, not the US. Now, the final point I want to make pertains to low probability events. The financial crisis is or was a low probability event, as people would say, is COVID. But given that these two events happened within you know, a decade and a half, many businesses, organizations will engage in scenario planning and they will be thinking more about low probability events. And one such unlikely though possible scenario is swing of the pendulum, political pendulum towards left, towards redistribution. And if this were to happen, that could be a seismic shock 
um, for capitalism. And I think that some forward-looking businesses will think about how they could preempt it, prepare for this. So they may actually voluntarily embrace more regulation and more taxation to prevent this backlash, this swing in the pendulum. Thank you. Beato, thank you very much indeed. Seismic shock for capitalism. Okay, let me ask a question then of all three of you, which is that uh, on the whole, over the years, capitalism has been quite good at adapting to circumstances, proving quite innovative, often when faced with challenges. Do you think that will be the case this time? Uh, or are we seeing a fundamental change in what we call capitalism and what we mean by capitalism? Paul, let me come to you first. Um, I think... As you say, capitalism periodically derails. It's, there's nothing new about that. It's been around for 250 years since the very birth of capitalism in the 1770s. And it's, it's I think, derailed really big time, at least three times. There was a public health crisis in the 1840s. There was mass unemployment in the 1930s. And from, a, from about 1980, this has been this new um, spatial divergence in a lot of countries. As Beata says, not everywhere, but in a lot of countries, this um, um, diverge, divergence between the metropolis, a booming metropolis, and broken provincial cities and towns. Um, and the, the distinctive is that it took so long to do anything about it. Actually, the, the health crisis of the 1840s was produced a response within 20 years. Um, the mass unemployment produced Keynesianism within 20 years. Um, but this divergence went on for 40 years before we got this mega mutinies, um, the Brexit vote in Britain, the election of Trump in America. Um, and these were mutinies by the very people who'd felt marginalized and disenfranchised. And in many ways, they had been disenfranchised um, because the political class had been captured um, by, a, uh, by a, a small group with its own agenda, really. Um, and that was the peculiarity of this time. Um, that's why a lot of people felt disenfranchised, that politics had been captured by a, a sort of semi-professional um, class, which was very detached. Um, from, from ordinary people. And that was particularly true, I think, um, on the left. The, the right got taken over by ideology in the 1980s, but frankly, that didn't persist. Um, the ideologues were a small group and they sort of faded out. Um, the left got taken over by a, a rather larger group. Um, and that, that kind of clung to, to its own very curious agenda, um, uh, uh, a distinctive form of identity politics. Um, what we've now just seen in Britain is that the new political battleground really is going to be those seats in the north of England, the 50 northern seats that changed hands. And that, I think, will anchor the political agenda much more firmly on an agenda that is pragmatically trying to address the needs of those people who have done badly um, out of globalization. Um, 
there have been an awful lot of losers for an awful long time and that is now going to have to be put right and it's not just a matter of raising benefits people want the dignity of being able to earn a productive living not just live on benefit street so it's redistributing productivity that we've got to do not just redistributing income and that's all cool. thank you very much uh, let me build on that then colin with you so we've got already that backdrop now we have coronavirus where, where does the juxtaposition of inequality and coronavirus leave capitalism it leaves it in a position where it was already moving in a direction that uh, was taking on board the idea that this was not a, a form that could uh, persist for any length of time. So even before coronavirus struck, we saw many statements being made by business about the way in which it needed to adapt to growing inequality, social exclusion, and environmental degradation. Now, as Beata was suggesting, a lot of that was really a response to a concern that if they didn't react, that there was going to be intensified regulation or nationalization imposed on them, and it was in their self-interest to react before those happened. What is now an addition to that equation is a recognition that business, in many cases, won't survive unless they redefine the way in which they operate going forward. And so one sees some of the, the largest, longest living companies going through a process of saying, well, what does it take for us to be able to demonstrate that we have a real value going forward? that will allow us to uh, retain our, uh, our existence. And that's leading to a refocusing around the notions of what really matters, both from the point of view of their companies, changing preferences, but also from the point of view of the people that are really important to them, namely their employees, the people in their supply chains, their workers, and of course the societies in which they're operating so that there's going to be a strong push from government for reform in the form of regulation and other interventions. But also, we're going to see a greater recognition by business going forward that things need to change. Colin, thank you very much. I expect we're going to talk in a few minutes about uh, social licenses to operate, but let's hold off on that. Beata. Um, let me react to what Colin said. I mean, businesses, don't operate in a void, regulation matters. Um, and so let's think about the level of competition, right? So in the 1990s, US had a much higher level of competition than Europe. That was what was believed by most observers. But then in the last two decades, we have observed a big change. Um, Europe with the single market, with the um, European competition authorities, 
has reasonably aggressively pursued the competition agenda, while in the US, the level of concentration and market power has risen. And that is true outside of the tech sector as well. So I am not really sure that the optimistic stance that Colin has taken, that businesses will pursue a purpose, um, is likely to happen in the US anytime soon. Why in Europe, perhaps they will not have a chance to do it because they will be hit with regulation as the state strikes back. Beata, thank you. And just, just on that, you know, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? That capitalism at the end of all this, uh, I don't know whether you'd like to come back on this, Beata, but capitalism at the end of all this may end up being even more dominated uh, by monopolists. I think we are going to observe a divergence. So there isn't one type of capitalism. Um, capitalism evolves. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if Anglo-Saxon countries and continental Europe started evolving um, in different directions. Okay, interesting thought. Um, let, let me come back to something I mentioned a minute ago, which you've all touched upon actually without using the phrase, but are businesses going to be more interested in this idea of a social license to operate as a way forward? They realize they're going to have to have greater responsibilities if capitalism is to survive. And we've seen lots of companies sort of talking about the need to be aware of all stakeholders, social licenses to operate, um, something that goes beyond profit. Do you see that trend being enhanced at all, uh, Paul? Yes, I think it's, um, I mean, Biard is right that some of it will be done by regulation. Um, um, I think, and Colin's right, that it can't done, be done just by business. That's, that's sort of fantasy world. Um, so um, what, what can happen? I, th I, I, I don't have as rosy a view of regulation as, as Beata, frankly. I, I think, um, you know, if we look at the banks, um, the banks are bloody good at getting around regulation. Um, um, we've had um, uh, an attempt by um, the prosecution service to prosecute uh, top bankers, and um, the, the 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 legal system in Britain has produced two court decisions. One of which says that uh, one they tried to prosecute chief executive of a bank, and the answer was um, no. Um, the chief executive wasn't responsible because the board was responsible. And then in another legal case, they tried to prosecute the board of the bank. And the judgment there was that the board wasn't responsible because the chief executive was responsible, right? So um, regulation hits the rock that the top lawyers earning the top bucks, and the top bucks are very, very big, um, being hired, the best brains in the law are being used to evade the regulation. That's the bitter reality. Um, and so there are limits to regulation. Where I would really agree with Colin is, in the end, there's no substitute for a sense of purpose within a company so that to an extent it self-disciplines. Um, if a company tries to say one load of bullshit to, um, to, to, the, to, to the media um, and to citizens, 
and tell its, um, uh, its own uh, workforce to do something completely different, um, it will get into deep trouble. Paul, thank you very much. Um, just Colin then, do you equate sense of purpose with social licenses to operate? Well, we don't want to impose social licenses on all companies. We want to encourage as much diversity in corporate purpose as possible. And some, for some companies, a social license is an entirely appropriate way to think of its purpose, in particular in relation to utilities and companies that deliver a, a, a social purpose. But I want to come back to this discussion about whether regulation is going to be the way to achieve it, because I think Paul's absolutely right that regulation is simply not adequate. We've tried regulation for decades. Uh, the utility regulation system that we imposed in this country was the most carefully conceived regulatory system of any that's been devised. And there's an immense level of dissatisfaction which what's, with what's emerged at the end of the day. At the same time, Beata is right that companies are not simply going to take lock, stock and barrel on board the notion that suddenly they've got to become purposeful. It's going to take a push to get them to do that. And that's where law is critically important and where we have to embed the notion that companies need a purpose as part of their legal responsibility, the duties of directors to state a purpose and to demonstrate how their company's constitution is designed to ensure that they deliver on it and that they measure their performance against it. So we need to embed that notion of purpose firmly at the heart of what a company is. Interesting though, Colin, you know, you don't think then that uh, smart companies, smart capitalists will think actually we need to have a sense of purpose. We don't need to be pushed into it. We need to have a sense of purpose in order to do well in the next stage of capitalism. Yes. In many cases, that notion of doing well by doing good holds up. But unfortunately, it's the case that that often doesn't work and that companies are able to profit perfectly well, thank you, from engaging in clearly antisocial activities. I mean, we just have to think about the success of what are termed the sin stocks, tobacco, gambling, uh, alcohol, etc. to know that there's a lot of companies who do very well out of creating uh, problems for others. So, 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 so we need to recognize that uh, we've got to achieve a system that's better suited to creating a greater alignment between the interests of companies and their shareholders and what we as individuals, as societies and the natural world should have. Colin, thank you. Beata. So I certainly agree that regulation is not a panacea. It's a constant catch-up game. Um, but, you know, I'm a bit more skeptical than Colin about how easy it would be to embed this sense of purpose of a corporation in a law. Because if we can't deal or enforce basic regulations, how are we going to enforce this sense of purpose? 
Um, now, Paul mentioned pressure firms find themselves under from public opinion. And this is true of very large firms, firms um, that are household names. And I think ironically, this, these firms may lobby for regulation being extended to everybody because they themselves are under pressure anyway. So even without regulation, they are often behaving uh, in some areas reasonably well. They would want to impose these restrictions on other firms, uh, smaller firms. So I think there may be firms actually lobbying for more uh, restrictions. Beata, thank you. Um, just a reminder, by the way, to everyone watching, please send in your questions uh, because we would uh, love to feature some of them in a few minutes' time. Uh, depending which platform you're on, you can do it on Facebook in the comments section. You can do it here as well by uh, posting your questions in Zoom, of course, uh, and we'll pick some of them up and try to ask some of the questions. Let me turn to another aspect of all this then, this core question of just what is the right balance in the next stage uh, as we deal with the aftermath of this crisis between the state and the private sector, between public and private sector? And obviously it's a crucial question to ask now when the state seems to be doing so much, becoming the employer of last resort, the insurer of the economy of last resort, probably going to end up, as we've, we've discussed or mentioned just uh, earlier in the, uh, in the panel, uh, owning equity stakes in a variety, very large numbers of, of companies in many countries. So where does that balance lie? What is the size of the state going to be? Uh, Paul. Um, I think the, um, the state has got um, really quite badly overstretched. Um, uh, in order to be effective, a state needs two things. One is it needs to focus on relatively simple things. States are not good at highly complex stuff. Um, and the other is they need a lot of um, sort of willing compliance um, by citizens. And that's where um, trust comes in. Um, I mean, as, as, as you mentioned, uh, um, Jonathan, the, what was it? Yes, it was you. That there's been a sudden rebound in trust in, in government. Um, it's very specific, I think, to... Um, the need during a health crisis um, to, to feel that someone's in charge, um, uh, it won't take much more incompetence before um, that um, trust in the state will turn to um, anger uh, that it's done such an incompetent job. Um, uh, so we desperately need to restore a, a, a broader trust in the state, which, which means that people, to a large extent, comply, and that at the same time that the state needs to focus down on the much smaller range of things where it's pretty simple and big and standardized, which is what the state does best, is what you need. Most human purposes nowadays are pretty complex um, and quite rapidly changing. And big and standard um, doesn't work for, for really complex things. You need this continuous process of discovery. And for that, you need this devolution, both devolution to companies, devolution to communities, 
devolution to families. I mean, we, we've had um, uh, in the, uh, families stripped of, um, of agency um, by this sort of bossy, um, top-down um, state. There's a brilliant critique of social work by um, my friend and colleague Hilary Cotton, um, who, who describes a system in social, social work that is totally broken in Britain. 84% of the social workers' time is spent not helping the families, but trying to feed a system of monitoring. Um, and even the little time that's spent with families is used primarily to gather the data to feed the monitoring system. This is crazy. Um, Britain has taken, at the moment, it's got 80,000 children that it's taken from families and put them in temporary care. Uh, it can't work. Um, we need much more attempt to support both firms, families, communities. Ger Germany does a much better job of supporting communities. There's been a big expansion in local community level organizations in Germany over the last 30 years. The Verein, a big, big expansion. Um, nothing equivalent in Britain. We just undermined everything. So um, the state needs to learn how to work with the grain of other organizations that can do things, families, communities, firms, rather than try and boss everybody about and reduce it to the state and the individual and nothing in between. And Colin, just building on that, so how much, you know, you've got this, this state which may be bigger, how much room then does that leave for the private sector? You know, traditionally in Western European economies, for example, the state's been 40%, you know, between 40 and 50% of the economy in terms of uh, spending and uh, tax take, uh, financing things. So obviously the state is going to be much bigger. Does that leave the private sector breathing room? Well, let me just start off by observing that until the beginning of this year, there was a view that business was taking over the role of government. And so far as governments were in many cases bankrupt or unable to provide the types of public services that they had done in the past and it was the role of business to do that and businesses were growing bigger than nation states etc etc and then suddenly come this crisis we go in exactly the opposite direction and we find that business is entirely dependent in many cases on government to bail it out and that leads to this notion that the borders of the state are now expanding uh, substantially and pri the private sector is in, in retreat. I think that that's the wrong way of looking at this issue, that uh, it comes from the conventional view that really goes back to the, the Friedman notion that there is only one purpose of business to produce profit. And that is, one has to draw a sharp boundary between the private sector, between what companies can legitimately do and what the state should be doing. And that uh, one therefore has to determine what is appropriate for one and what is appropriate for the other. 
In fact, as Paul was describing, one should think in exactly the opposite way, that these are complementary activities that need to work together, whose activities are appropriately overlapping, and one shouldn't think about the role of business simply as being there to make money, because if you think about it in those terms, it, was, it will just wreak havoc uh, on the way in which it treats the rest of society. We need to think about the way in which government can help to promote successful development that builds on the role of business. And what's the role of business? The sort of thing that business can do that government is hopeless at doing is really innovating and experimenting. Uh, and so this notion of you know, the, the relative sizes of the public and the private sector is simply the wrong way of thinking about the problem. Think about the problems you're trying to solve and then the contribution that the different parties make towards solving those problems in partnership. Colin, thank you very much indeed. Beata? Two reactions. So, uh, Jonathan, you mentioned that states will be taking ever larger equity stakes in private firms. The challenge I see there is how to exit. Hmm. And um, this is not such a big issue in mature democracies in countries with good governance, but in many of our countries of operations, it's going to be a big challenge. How also to ensure that uh, firms in which state has a, an equity stake are not getting preferential treatment and how to ensure that you know this will not lead to further deterioration in governance entrenched interests and so on and so forth now also i would like to react to paul's um, mention of communities i wonder whether this giant experiment of remote work we have all been thrown into which most likely will stay for many of us will not actually revive interest in local communities. Um, we are spending days in our homes, we have only virtual interactions, but we still need interactions in real life. And I, I would think that many people will invest time in their communities, they will support local shops, local pubs, local restaurants. So there may be some positive thing coming out of this crisis. Thank you very much, Beata. Um, if people aren't muted, by the way, can I ask uh, you to mute because I can hear various uh, sounds on there. Uh, we'd love your questions, by the way. It'd be very good if you could uh, send them in uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can do it uh, on the comments section there. You can do it here on Zoom as well. Uh, please send your questions in. Now, we have got a few questions coming in, so why don't we move to a few of those. Uh, this one is from uh, Pablo Gassas, which uh, came from Facebook. Uh, if the trend for globalization is wound back, how should development strategies, what should development strategies look like in the future? Paul. Yeah, so a, um, that's a good question. Um, and I think for, for various reasons, um, um, globalization will somewhat be, be somewhat put down back. Um, um, the the new watchword is is not globalization it, it's resilience and resilience is not incompatible with uh, global relationships far from it um but it it 
probably is incompatible with the sort of global relations we've we've had today. We, the, 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 the value chains have been very much focused on, um, uh, on profit maximization, on cost minimization. Um, and uh, what we're now realizing is that for resilience, you need diversification of sources. And there's gonna be a trade-off between um, diversifying um, and, and, and cost minimization. Um, this is a, an interesting area where I think we do need some regulation because there's, there's some very good new um, sort of modeling work which shows that left to itself, a competitive market economy, um, firms will protect themselves from idiosyncratic supply shocks, but they won't protect themselves from some common supply shock. Um, but we really need to be protected from common supply shocks. A good example of how to do it uh, is Switzerland. Um, Switzerland's built a system of decentralized um, responsibility for resilience. So 300 supply managers in the top Swiss firms collectively are the Swiss resilience system. All 300 of them are required to hold to guarantee three months worth of continuous supply from their company by holding the stocks needed to enable that. And so the judgment of what should my firm do is decentralized, but it's a legal requirement. And they're also, they've got a collective identity. Those 300 people are responsible jointly and, and severally for, for Swiss resilience. And so most likely, why do they take that job seriously? Pride. And then a few of them take their job seriously because it's the law as well. It's an example of a continuing globalization, but one which is more resilient to these shocks. Paul, thank you very much. That's a very interesting uh, example, actually. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, Colin, uh, where do you think this leaves the future of globalization and the approach that should be taken? Globalization, beginning before uh, this crisis struck. Um, and that was because of a growing disillusionment in many companies about the way in which the uh, uh, sourcing from cheapest parts of the world was operating in practice. Uh, and, and what was realized as being a problem with that structure was that the contractual basis on which those relationships with suppliers around the world were operating was failing to take account of the types of relationships that previously existed when companies were operating on a more local basis. And what this shock has done has been to emphasize the significance of those types of relationships uh, that companies require with their suppliers and their purchasers to avoid the types of damage that are currently being inflicted upon them. And so what we are now going to see is that it's not simply a matter of where one is uh, sourcing from or who one is trading with, 
but the nature of the relationships that are going to emerge. And those are going to be much more based on the ways in which companies have operated previously in terms of having a uh, system by which they can interact effectively with their suppliers and their purchasers that allows them to essentially create the greater degree of resilience that's needed to avoid these types of shocks. So it's, it's not simply that we're going to observe a shift towards more local types of arrangements. We're going to see a shift in terms of the nature of the relationship between suppliers and companies. Thank you, Colin. Beata, so uh, interesting, you know, about the, the nature of resilience in global development and globalization and the importance of resilience. That's, that's a very good question, Jonathan, but let me um, talk a bit more broadly. I think the benefits um, stemming from differences in wages among production workers have already been reaped. Um, the next frontier is services. So even though there may be some rolling back of trading goods, even though I think that as we weaken global trading rules, we may see more regional trade agreements. For instance, think about North African countries, which are not integrated uh, among each other. So there, there may be a shift from global to regional. But services are the next frontier. Now, we have crossed, thanks to COVID, this psychological barrier of remote work. And if a firm post-COVID will choose to continue remote work, why hire a UK or German worker? Why not hire somebody from Poland or Morocco? And I think that's a big opportunity. That's an opportunity for developing countries. Of course, there are two barriers there. One is time zones. And second is privacy regulations. So anytime you need to deal with data, um, you may not be able to, to hire workers uh, from countries which do not subscribe to the same rules as your domestic rules. Beato, thank you very much indeed. And there was an interesting question actually which follows up on all of this. We've talked a lot in the past few minutes about decentralized economies, decentralized governments. Uh, and a question from uh, Niccolo Giacchino, who is uh, watching us here on Zoom, who says, uh, if we're going towards decentralized economies and governments, how do we tackle problems that need a global response? Uh, for example, the climate crisis. Paul. Um, yeah, I think the, um, um, there are a few things which do need um, a global common purpose. Um, need something closer to global common purpose, and uh, and climate is 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 obviously one of them. Um, and the um, I th I think the the way to do that is um, is probably through um, taxes levied nationally and where the revenues are collected and retained nationally, because that gives you the government as strong an incentive as is possible to actually um, start, to, start to discourage um, carbon emissions through, through taxing carbon rather than taxing work. Um, 
around the world, governments are going to be completely desperate for revenue uh, over the next few years. Um, and, um, and that means they're going to have to look for taxes that, are, um, that don't do a lot of damage to the economy. And unfortunately, many taxes do do damage to the economy. Um, uh, a carbon tax just pushes in the sensible direction anyway. Now, as Beata indicated a while ago, um, it's going to look very different in, um, in different countries, the willingness to actually impose a carbon tax. And what will, be, what will then happen, it's already just edging in, is that there'll be offsetting trade taxes, um, which, which sort of, um, which effectively become import duties faced by countries that are not levying these taxes. Um, I read a book which covered this in actually 10 years ago. It was um, uh, in retrospect prof prophetic because I said, if, if, if I were, um, you know, say America or whatever, China, uh, and I uh, thought that um, this might give the French an opportunity to impose um, import controls on my goods, I'd be so scared that I'd very willingly impose a carbon tax to avoid it. And sure enough, um, what is President Macron now very keen on, uh, he's keen on, um, on import duties to offset carbon taxes, I believe. So um, there are some countries where the instinct to protect is um, in their DNA. And so it would be very sensible of governments to uh, preempt that by a carbon tax, but uh, other people will have much wiser words than me. Paul, thank you very much. Colin, the question was about globalization, but I guess in a way it's really about the strain on multilateral action, isn't it? How do you, when multilateralism is under strain, as it has been for the past few years, where it may well continue to be and doesn't, you know, it seems to be under strain even in this crisis, where does that leave attempts to deal with common issues? Well, the answer is in the case of climate that there are three things uh, that will address it, one of which is as full tax, carbon taxes. The second is recession. So uh, we're all aware now of the positive elements associated uh, with reduced economic activity in terms of, uh, of uh, the environment. Uh, and the third is technology. Okay, and it's in, it's, in the, it's in the area of technology that we can potentially create the greatest strengths from uh, multilateral activities because that common interest is one that can promote a common response in terms of really putting the investments that are required into the development of new technologies. As has been said recently you know, the, the sector that's having the uh, best pandemic crisis is the renewables energy sector um, and you know, that, that, that is a reflection of the fact that there have been substantial uh, technological advances. We, we, we need to recognize the importance of having an international globally coordinated investment public sector investment and private sector investment in terms of identifying the ways in which we're going to solve 
the climate, the CO2 emission problem through the development of alternative sources. Uh, and that, that is something that I think will actually be accelerated by what's going on at the moment. Thank you, Colin. Piazza. Uh, I don't see decentralization as being incompatible with solving global problems. Um, so for instance, you know, we need to co-opt localities um, to deal with low carbon transition. So in Europe, they will try to compete for just transition funds and to transform themselves. At the same time, there will be a recognition that you need your national government um, to channel some funding to Brussels and negotiate the rules um, that will allow localities to, to tap into these resources. So perhaps there will be a um, split of responsibilities. You will delegate more to national governments to, to play at the international global level, while regions will implement things. Beato, thank you. Um, moving on to another question from our audience. This is from uh, Catherine Bridge-Zoller. She says a number of governments have introduced uh, temporary emergency measures for example, the suspension or limitation of insolvency procedures to shield businesses and in some cases consumers from the immediate impact of the crisis. My question is, what can be done by governments to transition from such uh, emergency measures and to create a, a softer landing? Should governments be selective about the businesses they protect? Colin. Yeah, so absolutely the government is going to be critical because Otherwise, as this question suggests, we're going to be entirely dependent on the bankruptcy courts uh, around the world to deal with the problem. And I can tell you that for the most part, courts are not very good at restructuring companies. What can we do about it? Well, the answer of what we can do about it is to recognize why we got this problem. You know, the, the, one of the reasons we've got this problem is many companies have not had a sufficient cushion and equity base against which to protect themselves from this type of disturbance. And what we're going to have to do over the um, coming months and years is to restructure the massive injection of debt that's occurred. You know, just recognize the fact that the monetary injections uh, the loans, they're all great for you know, temporarily uh, allowing companies to survive, but they're going to leave companies even more uh, leveraged than they were before uh, they went in. And in particular, that leaves the small and medium-sized sector very heavily exposed. So what are we going to have to do about it? We're going to have to essentially engage in a mechanism by which we transfer debt into a form of equity. Uh, and for example, there have been discussions about, can we create a, the equivalent of a sovereign wealth fund uh, in this country, uh, if we're not gonna leave it to the British Business Bank uh, to do this? Well, the answer is, it's not gonna be a sovereign wealth fund in any traditional sense of it. It's, it's certainly not a fund in terms of investing in list, listed companies. Uh, it's not a wealth fund. We haven't got any wealth and it's not going to be sovereign in which we allocate things across countries. But what it can do is to essentially provide a basis on which 
we can then create the, uh, the financing vehicles that allow that sort of detailed evaluation of companies that is needed to be done if one is to restructure them without putting them through a formal bankruptcy uh, procedure. Uh, and that type of devolved uh, financial system, banking system, uh, private equity type uh, investment vehicles is what we're going to need to be able to really create that type of funding mechanism that's going to get us out of the horrendous problems that otherwise we're going to face ourselves with um, and allow us to essentially rebuild uh, businesses going forward. Colin, thank you. Be Beata, just on, the, on this issue, I mean, it, it is the truth, isn't it, about temporary measures. They're always much easier to impose than to withdraw if you're trying to protect economy. You know, it's fine when you need to move in a hurry, as has happened this time, but withdrawing them can be a very slow process and, and, and complex. Um, indeed. I mean, as, as Colin said, we need to think about why we are doing this, right? The idea is we want to protect businesses that are viable from going out of going, going bankrupt so that when we finally reach the recovery stage, we'll be able to rebound quickly. Um, that, and, but you know, you can't choose very quickly which businesses to protect, so therefore you stop insolvency proceedings. Of course, some businesses um, will fail and should be failing um, because the world has changed and some sectors will do more poorly after um, the crisis. So think about you know, how many people will be willing to go on a cruise ship. Um, what worries me very much is that in countries with lesser governance, businesses will lobby, businesses in those sectors that are uh, in trouble will lobby um, to receive more help, even though it would be better for the economy if they failed earlier rather than later, as presumably is inevitable. Beata, thank you. Um, a question from Pedro Almeida. How will innovation be affected by new working conditions? How does the uh, likely new normal remote working and meeting framework, I guess like this meeting, uh, where such free interactions don't exist, um, influence innovation and business development. It, it could be potentially, if this carried on for a long time, a very different atmosphere in, you know, in helping ideas to thrive, couldn't it, uh, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's the case that it's Google I'm talking about, but there was a study on um, the, one of the very high-tech companies like Google, which said, um, what predicts um, wh who's actually coming up with, which teams are coming up with innovations? And the answer was, um, who sits next to whom? Um, so even in the most high-tech company in the world, what was actually driving things was, was physical proximity. Um, and so there's a limit um, to, um, to, to, to how much you can do everything by, uh, by, by Zoom, as it were. Um, but um, we're nowhere near that limit at the moment. Um, I think there's going to be a, a big um, relocation of a lot of economic activity out of the megacities. Um, and it was a trend that was already starting. I mean, um, in Britain, 
um, HS HSBC had just decided to shift its um, main office from London to, to Birmingham. Um, uh, Barclays has just announced, why are we making 7,000 people each day um, commute into the, in, into the city? Um, and so I think um, uh, office space will be rethought to being a good place to, to, to meet up. Um, and we need to encourage not just formal meetings, but sort of random social interactions within a work environment. Um, and that doesn't have to be um, five days a week, um, nine to five or anything like that. Um, so, so, and people don't need to live within a short commute of a mega city in order to, to be able to be productive. So I think there'll be a real relocation. I think um, the, the mega cities will find more than any other single block of activity, um, post-COVID world will be very different. The narrative, go to London or fail, uh, is already, is really going to be over, I think. Um, whilst, I could, whilst I've got this floor, could I just yeah. sort of build on the, the, the previous discussion about firms? I think mm. um, it, what we need, as Colin said, it's, it's long-term capital, in very often in small firms. And as Beata said, a lot of these firms should go bust. Um, and for that, you really, the, the people putting in the capital need a lot of knowledge. You don't want to put a lot of capital, long-term capital into, into a firm that should go bust, but you do want to go to, to finance the, if, if we're not to have mass unemployment, every firm that goes bust must be matched by a firm that, that, that expands and, and starts up. And so we need huge expansion, long-term, not just short-term, but long-term uh, in, in this informed long-term finance. Britain hasn't had that except in London. That's been our big failure. And so the, 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 the move into equity holding in small and medium firms isn't just a short-term phenomenon. It's what's been missing already. It's why we've got the regional problem in the first place, because outside London, there hasn't been any localized finance. That's what we've got to restore. And, um, and for that, it's got to be long-term relationships between people who manage capital and the firm. And that can only be done locally. That's the sort of um, if you like, there are two very different animals for private equity. There's an, a, an industry which does local, small private equity, which holds money for seven or 10 years in a company and works intimately with the company, puts people on the board and so on. And then there's the top end London private equity, which is the financial engineering, let's loot the company um, so that the, the people who've just got a, a bought a share in it can run off with it. Um, and that sort of private equity, the sort of London city stuff needs to be closed down by regulation. And the localized private equity needs a vast expansion. Paul, thank you very much. 
Colin, you know, here we are. Oh, I can see you in your uh, study there. You know, here I am in a spare bedroom. This new way of working, what does that mean for innovation? It, it is going to transform numerous parts of the, uh, the world and the economies as we know them. And I'll, 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 I'll give you an illustration. I, I sit on a, a board of a, of a, of a theatre um, and as you can imagine, it's shut. It's got no audiences. Uh, in all likelihood, it won't have any audiences before the beginning of next year. Um, and even then, many people are going to be very reluctant to be going sitting uh, in close proximity with others. So uh, what, what's the potential uh, for uh, an organization like that? Well, the answer is it's phenomenal. I mean, one of the things that uh, happened recently was that uh, a, 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 a local theatre company used Zoom to put on a production in which all the actors were in their own rooms, they interacted with each other, and they interacted with the audiences. And it created the most amazing theatrical experience. Okay? And one just has to recognise its shocks that create the greatest ingenuity uh, in people. Uh, and what is going to determine, uh, coming back to the point that Paul was just making about uh, identifying which companies should be rescued and which companies should survive, it's those that really demonstrate the type of innovation and new ideas that recognize how our preferences as customers and societies are changing and the way in which technologies allow us and encourage us to change that are the ones that are really going to survive and deserve to be supported financially. Colin, thank you. It's a bit like our roving uh, troop of uh, economists here, uh, all in our own homes, your theatre company. Uh, Beata. Paul was mentioning um, big firms moving away from large cities such as London. Now, this means that density of ideas in those big metropolitan areas will go down and there, there will be a loss of some innovation because the fact that people mingle not just in the office, but they mingle in a pub, they mingle with people from neighboring businesses, um, that creates ideas, that leads to startups, and this will be happening to a lesser extent. On the other hand, as we cannot mingle in a pub on Exchange Square, um, now sitting in our homes, perhaps we are reaching more to people from other countries, from other parts of the world. So perhaps there will be more innovation, more through contacts across countries, through having more global contacts. Now, we perhaps don't know yet how to brainstorm on Zoom, but we are learning. And hopefully we'll make some progress there. Beata, thank you. Now, we've only got a few minutes left. Let's end with some uh, concluding thoughts, just, just very quickly. on If we were, you know, let's look ahead. It's five years' time from now. What, what at that point does capitalism look like? You've only got 30 seconds each, I'm sorry to say, to try to sum this up. But a, a quick snapshot, Paul. If in five years' time you were looking at the state of capitalism, the balance with the state, give us your 30 seconds on that. Yeah. Um, I'd be worried about, and I am worried about, my, my day job is working on poor countries. And I think in five years' time, uh, there's a danger that um, 
poorer countries, Middle East, Africa, um, will actually have fallen further behind um, because they're not in a very good position um, to, to respond to all this. They, as, as I think Piotr said, they don't have uh, very fleet of foot governments with a lot of capacity. And the macroeconomic shock that's hit them is much more severe than the hit in the OECD. So that will be my concern in five years' time. We, we will face a new sort of problem. Um, the, the divergence, which basically hasn't been happening, thank God, uh, in, uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, will reappear. Thank you very much, Paul. Colin, uh, capitalism in 2025, what, what does it look like then? As I s indicated, in many respects, I'm very optimistic. But there is one respect in which I'm concerned, and that is the, uh, the, the prospects, the sh at least the medium-term prospects of employment for my children and my grandchildren, uh, which already, in relation to uh, the rise of artificial intelligence uh, was something that was uh, under question. Uh, but in response to what's currently going on, we're going to get an acceleration and we've already observed many companies responding this way in terms of saying, right, well, if we can't rely on humans, we're going to have to dehumanize our workplace. And it's, to my mind, it's critically important that we, can, that we recognize that machines are well suited to doing some things, but deplorable at doing many things. And in particular, the sorts of things that I've been emphasizing about relationships and trust, you, know, you can't trust a machine to do anything other than what it's programmed to do. Uh, and we need to ensure that we build up the uh, employment prospects around the creation of those artificial intelligence systems. Thank you, Colin Beyazza. So my guess is that we will see more globally, environmentally and socially minded Europe, perhaps moving closer, inching towards universal basic income. North America perhaps will go towards even more inequality and China will be a big question mark. <laughs> All right, we'll end on that question mark. Uh, Beata, Paul, uh, Colin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you to all of you as well for watching. A very thought-provoking discussion. Uh, this episode, by the way, is part of our coronavirus special series, The Future of Capitalism Post-COVID-19 Crisis. We'll be posting a podcast of today's session a bit later on. You can download it on iTunes, and uh, we'd love you to, by the way, to review and uh, rate these on iTunes. Helps others to find it, so, which is important. So we'd love to, to spread the word. I'm Jonathan Charles. Uh, looking forward to our next discussion, and uh, see you next time. Bye. You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD.